Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey guys, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. Welcome to the show. And uh, we get a ton of questions about tone. Uh, And so uh, we are going to devote this whole episode to it. For today's episode, we've decided to recruit friend of the show, Sheila Hanahan-Taylor, to help us talk about tone because P.S. she's a genius. Um, and something that in our experience, a lot of writers get wrong. And I think they get it wrong in their pitches and in their scripts. So we're going to talk about it in a broad way and very specific way. So Sheila, thanks for coming in to talk about tone. So excited. Thank you for having me back. I'm very flattered. I love it. Yay. Now, before we get into our topic of tone, uh, Sheila has agreed to participate in our we talk about our weeks or what we call adventures in screenwriting. So Lorian, how was your week? I have no idea as usual. Um, I am very much or have been this week very much in that pit, that writer's pit where the demon sits right there and just tells me all kinds of things that are hopefully not true. Like you don't have any original ideas and you should quit and go do anything else. And why are you wasting your time? And no one wants to hear these stories. And uh, it's been really rough. And I do that thing where I was like, I'll come up with 20 ideas. And then uh, no one liked any of them. And then I'll come up with 30 ideas. And then it was seven or eight pages of just what if, and then what, and this. And then at the last page was, what is what is happening? This is so dumb. And, uh, and I felt that feeling of, this was all yesterday, by the way, I felt that feeling of, I just have to put my head down and cry. This is way, 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 way too hard. I feel so lost and overwhelmed. Uh, like I'm in the pit and then someone covered it up with dirt and concrete and I just can't get out. And in that moment, I have recognized that moment because I've been there before, which was, oh, something's around, something's about to break. And I knew that if I stayed in that moment, that I would be able to get to the next place. But if I quit and walked away and like left my desk, then I would be stuck in that pit on that particular project. So I did what I always do, which is text Meg. Meg, help, (laughs) help, help, help. I suck. This is too hard. And I just told her all the truth of what the demon was telling me. And she did this really amazing thing she does where she um, says it back to me. And it's like, that's terrible. What a terrible thing I'm saying about myself. And, um, and then helped me sort of by asking me questions, sort of pick out what might be a good idea. And then I worked on that and then uh, and then I actually really like it now. I actually was getting close to something. I just, you know, I got really hung up on what is this about? What is the about? What's the theme? And she was like, I don't care. Just write. Just go write. Write the outline. Write I was like, fuck done. what it's about. Fuck it. Which is, <laughs> you guys, like, our listeners know that's like crazy for me to say because it's all I talk about. Yes. But I was like, in this case, fuck that. It's, it's dragging you down into the pit. Can you please go write and have Fun. I just want you to have some fun. 
Yeah. And so I did the thing that's most fun for me, which is that I outlined act one very roughly, right? Because I love, who doesn't love act one? I love act one, right? So, um, and that was great. And then I, so now I feel like I actually have something to write into and I just wrote a log line for it, which was easy because I have the high concept and the character. And I actually, in writing the log line, figured out what it was about. So, there we go. Yeah. 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 But, Which is so um, great because uh, Sheila helped us learn about log lines. So perfect. Yeah. But the, I have to say that that pit and that dart is so fucking scary. And it feels like it's bigger than just a project. It feels mm -hmm. like it's life. It feels like I can't make this one thing that I do work. Like what the fuck is going on? What's the point? What am I even doing? And it feels like this existential crisis. And I don't like those. I like knowing. I like process. I like being busy. Um, so it was really scary. But I did have that moment. Maybe I'm evolving as a as a writer where I was like, oh, I recognize this. There is something coming. So that was my week uh, in, in my life as a writer. Uh, yeah. So um, Sheila, how was your week? My week I feel like I want to answer today more from like producer working with writer place, um, which is always a different spin on things. I mean, Meg and I have joked for years at some point when we have time, which is <laughs> never, um, that we need to do a book called The Producer Is Your Friend. Because I feel like so many times every writer's like, oh, I got notes from this producer. Or you know what the producer wants, or or worse, it's not even our fault, but like they just lost a million dollars. So now we have to like rethink it because we don't have as much money. But whatever the case is, we have a project right now where um, we were asking the writer, like, what is this really about? You know, there, there's a difference between like complicated stories and vague stories, right? And like, I'm all for complicated. I love complicated, but it needs to be like on a, on a, on a line. So we said, what's it all about? And this writer said, you know what? Every time I try to put in a script what it's about, I get fired. And like my head exploded because I couldn't figure out if it was because they were putting in the thing that the producers and the buyers didn't want or if they were just doing a not good job at it or whatever. But basically what was supposed to be kind of a notes meeting evolved into a like this is a safe space. I'm not firing you. Like, can I help you figure out to you what it's about because obviously for every writer if they don't quite know what it's about it's not ever going to work like I can't tell them what it's about because then that's like this fake version that for a while they can kind of skim across and make it sort of but when they have to really write it, it never comes together in the best way so what was initially I think what the writer thought was combative and going to be another shitty mean producer traumatic experience because this writer's worked with a lot of big shots which by the way also stunning to me that they still haven't figured out what movies are about and are scared of getting fired even though they're working with big shots but that's a different conversation um but and say and instead turning it into like a, a much more collaborative happier experience where they walked away with like a spring on their step ready to try that and I felt like Hopefully, maybe there was a conversation there that might have changed their perspective on how how it is to get feedback from people who are only, by the way, all trying to do the same thing, which is get the film made. So right. it's really it's really challenging when you're like, wait, why am I the bad guy when there is a collective goal? The community agrees. Right, right. <laughs> um, 
right? And and I just don't want to be on set at two in the morning having that conversation with like a director and an actor who are both making a different movie because something was too vague earlier on. So it was a nice day and I hope it helped this writer going forward. I don't know and we'll see how the draft is. So that was my moment. But yeah, producers are your friend. I swear to God, really. Really. Emphasize. <laughs> and if they're not, you're with the wrong producer. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So that was my week. Meg, how was oh. your week? Uh, Jeff, let's do your week. I'll be. Oh, there. yeah, yeah. Let's do Jeff's. Um, I'll keep it fast. I uh, got some exciting news that I can't announce yet, but at some point I will be allowed to. So that's a fun edge of your seat thing to say. Um, teaser. A little teaser. Um, but because of this news, I haven't really been writing, um, which is okay. I feel like I'm doing important career things, but they aren't writing right now. But I will say just to keep things relevant and interesting, I've been watching The White Lotus, Mike White's um, show on HBO that I'm just obsessed with. I love season one. I'm very into season two right now. And I just think Mike White, I've been thinking about like what he does as a writer and who he is as a writer. And I feel like so much, you know, he's a writer director. He kind of does it all. But I think so much of his brilliance starts on the page. And um, today's a tone episode. And I think like he, the way he writes and partly the way he directs in the production design and score of his shows but it is so tonally specific and he's just nailing something. I think in particular, the thing I love about Mike White's writing, and I was a big fan of his show Enlightened with Laura Dern too, is that it's so unafraid to explore all of the kind of unlikable crevices of what it means to be a human. And he has this way of, of, of fearlessly showing just the gross kind of unflattering things that make us people and the thing it's almost spooky watching Mike White's shows because you see your worst parts of yourself in every one of his characters while still seeing some of the best parts of yourself as well but I just think that fearlessness he has a way of making the people that populate his shows feel so uncanny in a way that kind of makes your skin crawl sometimes um but also makes you love the characters because you know them like you feel like in two lines of dialogue you've met these people you are these people and there's just a fearlessness that I think starts on the page with Mike White. So if you're not watching The White Lotus right now, I think it's just a masterclass. It doesn't even really have to be about anything just because I love the characters so much. Of course it is, but um, I'm just really enjoying season two. And if anyone wants to nerd out about uh, this season, meet me on the Facebook group and we'll, we can talk about it. Boy, talk about tone. Talk about yeah. specific tone. Yes. And voice. Um, my week, super fun and easy to talk about. Uh, we took my father's dragon to the Virginia film festival, um, which was really great. It got a really great reception and there were tons of kids in the audience and they got, the kids got to ask the questions, which was kids asked the best questions. They're so direct and they don't, they don't, they're not trying to impress anybody. They literally have this question and uh, they're just, I just loved it so much. And one little girl pulled her other friend up and said, we're best friends and we go on adventures in the woods. So we're in this movie. We felt like we were watching us in this movie. And oh my God, it was, it was adorable and fantastic. And the kids loved it. And they were all, they were all kind of at the beginning of the film running around and jumbly. And then by, you know, 10 minutes in, they're all like completely quiet watching. And you're like, okay, we got them. So it was really fun. And um, got to do a panel with Johnny Hancock and Lance Dustin Black, which was just, it's always so amazing to sit on a panel with really, really good, good writers and hear them think. I just, it's my candy. It's my happy place. And then the other thing we did that was super fun and weird for me was, and in a good way, is we took the film 
we went to this place in Alhambra, which is over here near Pasadena, and it's a gallery for art, but it's kind of, um, I think it's comic art or, or uh, and uh, it's called Gallery Nucleus. I highly recommend it if you're interested in art. Um, and they bring in filmmakers um, in the animation space. Like last week before us was Henry Selleck. And we come in and she gave a presentation on the art and how she created it, and which was spectacular. And there, the art from the movie was hanging on the walls. And then all this is super fun. And I'm just there to talk about the story. And then I don't know this is going to happen. This gallery, Netflix made for this gallery small posters of the movie that anybody who came could take one and come up and get an autograph. You guys, I signed autographs. I don't Ooh. think anybody actually wanted my autograph. They want Nora's autograph, of course. But I was like, well, you handed me a pen, so I guess I'm going to sign I it. love it. Nobody ever asked a writer to sign anything. Uh, so it was super fun. I mean, you know, you got to tell the up stories. This was it, one of the questions from the audience is what, to say one fun time and one challenging time. And I was like, the fun time right now, today. <laughs> this is the fun time right now. This is the time that we're all working for. But, uh, you know, and it's nothing's perfect. Like you walk out of this amazing high and see a review that's kind of mediocre. And you're like, your, your brain goes, but it doesn't matter. You just have to be like, I'm going to stay in that happy bubble. I'm just going to stay there. And people like the film. And uh, it comes out on Friday the 11th. So uh, I'm excited. I'm Here it comes after 12 years, a 12-year journey. We are going to have Nora on the show to come in and talk about it. And that'll be super fun. But. Let's get on to our topic of the day. Before before we do that, yes. Meg, didn't you also get an award? Uh, yeah, but I guess. You got what an award? Come on. What was the award? At the Film Festival, they gave me screen my a screenwriter award, which was so nice. For what? For just being a good screenwriter. I awesome. Congratulations. It's the being a good screenwriter award Did from you the get Film a Festival. statue? I got like a kind of crystal thing that was so heavy i had to check my luggage <laughs> okay so uh you got to tell us where you're gonna put it i'll take a like, picture i'll post it on okay. facebook because okay. you know again rare like unicorns giving a writer an award um <laughs> but uh it was fun it was an honor and and you know what's amazing is that uh it was given to me by john lee hancock who i have been a fan of i can't even tell you how many years i have been a fan of john lee hancock like just a super fan so even getting to meet him to me was a prize like I'm talking to John Lee Hancock and he's giving me an award it kind of blew my brain but um so it was good it was fun you know this is the you gotta share the uptimes too okay topic topic of tone um I will start by saying uh we wanted to do this show because it is such I would say of all the of all the all the pieces of the story engine that you have to learn as a writer, uh, tone can be the hardest for people to understand. And I think they mix up plot and tone. They think when somebody asks them the tone of the film, they find another movie that is the same in plot. But that is not what's being asked. What's being asked is how do you want the audience to feel? And that can kind of be a hard thing to grok the difference so we thought we'd do a show on it and honestly Sheila is one of the best people at explaining this um so we were like please Sheila come on the show 
Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out. And you know, the question's going around, is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot and I wanna see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste. Uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0, where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script. So without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or you know if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful. And what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am laying out a new project, and I want to card it. And I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool. So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraft.com slash products to get the new version with a discount code of ScreenFD for 25% off. You should check it out. That's ScreenFD. S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D. So Sheila, what is tone for you? First of all, you were spot on. the, The word I love to use is it's elusive to describe. And a lot of people after after having like a whole tone lesson will be like, so it's kind of like that joke about pornography. Like I know it when I see it, meaning there's no system in which you can nail down tone the way you mathematically can like do a structure page count or something. But it's more about how are you going to treat this subject or how are you going to treat this situation? So for me, Filmmaking is the most ultimate version of it versus like a novelist or something, because not only is it the words on the page and, and the syntax on even the order of the words on the page or how quickly you're writing something or how long and laboriously you're writing it, but you have the benefit of then bringing in a cinematographer or a lighting designer or a costume designer to like triple, double emphasize that. So you give them this amazing roadmap. And if you do your job explaining how it's supposed to smell and feel and the energy that you want this whole story to unfold. That'll just send all these creative people, these costume people in production and props and whatnot off to the races. So for me, it's all about how you're approaching tone. And I like to think of it in like three categories. I'd say for sure it's the syntax, right? It's like the order of which you actually spell out the words. You know, we have a we have a really old friend who's generally a comedy writer. And at one point in his career, he had to be um, like an action person. And he had spent years refining his prose in the script as well as his dialogue to just be fucking funny, right? Like I remember him saying like, you know, what's a really funny word. I try to put it in almost every one of my things spleen it's way funnier than liver it's way funnier than pancreas like spleen it's just funny and see like i'm watching my laugh right now so suddenly he's to switch to action and everything about his craft even the sentence length had to switch let alone adjectives and things like that but like the staccato necessary to unpack an action sequence was way different than how he was like getting us into a joke so it's syntax it's word choice but more importantly 
I believe like there's some people out there who say, well, it's, it's the writer's point of view. It's the writer's attitude about the topic. And I feel like that has an asterisk next to it because after walking, like watching this happen so often, I believe it's a strategic attitude in this circumstance, meaning it might not be their opinion all the time and it might not be the way they see the world, but for this script, this is the best way to get my point across is making you feel this way and putting a character with this point of view about the scenario and emotion. But like once they're done with that script, they might explore it in a different way, some other tone, right? So for me, I like to say it's a choice. It's a strategic choice to help get the dialogue going, to help stimulate the conversation. Uh, the other example that I've been using lately because I think it it was really smart is if you look at Promising Young Woman by Emerald Fennell, she took what was like a horrible, heartbreaking, really serious topic. And it evolved apparently from like dinner party conversations and her way to make sure enough eyeballs got on this topic and enough of the right eyeballs got in this topic. She gave it this bubblegummy, poppy music video kind of tone which enabled people to then get on this journey with this young woman and slowly become outraged and slowly work themselves into that emotional state that she wanted you to leave with. But she didn't like come out of the gate with it. It took even in the opening sequence, it's like an eight or nine minute sequence before it really becomes declarative what it is. So all of that was a purposeful, intentional tone choice to make a hard topic more universal and more approachable for a bigger audience. So she, it was strategic. I'm sure in another situation, she might really, really sad, horrible version of that movie. So that was, that's sort of like, those are like my quick headlines, but I have a ton of other thoughts, but hopefully that's a, it's a, a launching point for questions and things like that. I have a question about, so Meg, you talked about um, tone and plot, and I have a question about tone and genre. Ah, and that's just the question, tone and genre, question mark. Yes. Okay. So we run into this all the time, by the way, because somebody like a hundred years ago with film marketing and teaching fucked us all up because they use this word genre. And sometimes it means like where it's set. And then sometimes they mean tone. Like, is it a suspenseful thriller or is it like a silly thriller or whatnot? And then sometimes, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a hodgepodge now in terms of where genre and tone live together. So for me, like, like you could look at some of the classics over the years of movies and you could look at something like, what about Bob, the classic Bill Murray, Richard Dreyfuss movie. And then you have single white female and they're like literally plot wise identical yet they've tackled the situation in a completely different tone. So the genre of what is it like to have a stalker in your world is accurate. Like the math of that genre is right there beat for beat structurally you're good so if you if you backed up and did like one of those like a quick two-page beat sheet just listing plot they would almost match up and then you take a really cool point of view and say how am I going to make it like this broad comedy because I have two of the best comic actors going or how am I going to make it this ridiculous crazy tale of these two women and their obsession with each other so you sort of need to for me take genre and make it the mathematical version of genre because that's its own thing does the story deliver on all those moments that the audience loves in that space? And then you can go in and be like, again, what's my attitude about this? Is it funny? Is it scary? Is it silly? Is it suspenseful? Is it thrilling? 
But again, genre confuses everybody because then you say like, okay, it's a Western. Well, guess what? Let's look at all the different Westerns we have. We have everything from like true grit to like big, weird comedy Westerns, or you could say like it's science fiction and suddenly you have like men in black or you have close encounters. Like it's horrible. So it's really hard to say genre without trying to find a terrific tonal reference. And that's why when when we go to all these amazing pitch fests and all these young writers are forced to do those two minute pitches, which to me is like the hardest thing in the whole, whole wide world. And they they're like, well, I have a vampire Western musical. And you're just like, oh, I feel you. But don't do that because it hurts everyone's head so much. (laughs) And let's pick first, like what is going on in the movie? or the TV show, and then how does it make you feel? Because to me, if you don't know what's going on, there's nothing to latch on to. There's no emotional connection, right? And then which version are you telling us? And by the way, inside of a plot, you can have like 20, weirdly, 20 different tones because you could have the character who, like you could have a kid die in a movie and you have one character who's really angry. Then you have one character who's super sullen and quiet and can't even move. And then you have another character who's like going off the deep end, super depressed. So but even don't you think, in- but don't you think Sheila, because I, I find often with when I read emerging writer scripts, one of the biggest problems is there's a billion tones in here. Yes. And I think you got to pick a pony like the tone of this movie is this. And then maybe within that there's shades and shading of different uh characters responding to that overall tone but i think a movie has a singular tone yes so what i've what i'm doing to help divide lately this is my new thing with people there's a mood the whole mood of the project is kind of what people are using the word tone for because like yes you want everyone to be immersed in the mood of this environment what's the whole state of the world what's going on even like economically politically in this family dynamic like there's a mood over every good, well-told story. And that's consistent. And that is like one, pick one, stay in that space. But inside of the mood, there can be highs and lows. There can be the one character who's got a different take on it. So to me, I feel like you're spot on. Early drafts from younger writers, the mood is inconsistent. Even the way they describe stuff is too spotty in terms of sometimes it feels more weighted and sometimes it's more funny and it's like, no, no, no descriptions have to sort of stay in the lane all the way through really consistent, but I'm happy to have the weird character who has a different take on stuff because that's where good conflict comes from. And that's where a great twist in the plot comes from, but they're still living in the mood. Of they're still in the mood of the, of the, of this story, right? Like yes. inside out has many different moments within yeah. the mood, right? We can yeah. be, kind of longing for our kid who we've lost or we can be slapsticky but the movie as a whole has a singular tone and mood to it correct so that's that's usually how we keep sort of dividing stuff so that I can make sure as we go through something like we have a project right now where there's a husband and wife dynamic and they're separated and so every draft the writer's trying a different take like one version came in and they were really um like really combative as he did the kid drop off and then another version he tried the like melancholy maybe there's a hint that they might be getting back together version. And it really impacted the entire movie. And it was really two scenes. But the tone of those set the pace for the entire mood of the movie. So that was what else was fascinating is how one scene, two scenes can specifically plant a flag across the entire show or the entire project. And 
And for me, that's where some young writers get off track because they'll pick that one scene and then they, they, you know, I mean, it takes so long to write a script. Sometimes they can't channel that again or whatnot. And they come back and I'll be on page 50 and I'll be like, wow, this doesn't feel like the same project anymore. Yeah. And sometimes I try to figure out what a writer is doing. We'll say, well, who's starring in this? Because actors, especially big movie stars, tend to, not always, but they tend to have a lane of tone that they have found is their tone that they do well. So if is if it's a comedy, I'm like, is it Will Ferrell in the in the lead mm-hmm. uh, versus another comedy actor? Because Will Ferrell has a very kind of specific tone that he likes to walk the edge, you know. So are we doing, um, you know, he does like the the broadcasters and the skaters and the you know what I mean is that what we're doing it's that kind of broad but oddly human vulnerable tone within the and the kind of assholes but we like them <laughs> like that's a tone right yeah uh, or are we doing Ryan Reynolds in the proposal like it's very real it's not going to go too it's broad but still feels very real in its broadness and he feels like a a real yep. guy uh, so it's it's it, that's another way sometimes I try to help a writer see what tone they're doing is ask who's starring in it because sometimes not always they do shift around in tone but most of them don't most of them pick a lane what do you think oh always like we I, oh, by the way one of my other students reminded me because I told her I was coming on to this um I guess we we sort of talked about that when I was here last time we said we did some version of like imagine the Jack Black version versus uh Robert De Niro like it's completely different version of any of the same scene but how they would tackle something so I think you're right I mean even if it's pie in the sky that you would ever get them it just helps everyone have a common dialogue and a touchstone that we know what we're working with I think it's vital so we we love to talk about that we also talk about you know it's fascinating when we were teaching uh tone back at UCLA what we ran into a lot especially with young like writer directors is a lot of their best tone references were always directors because we can visually really see it. Like everybody wants to do Wes Anderson. Everybody wants to do the Coen brothers. Everybody wants to do David Fincher. And even though David doesn't write as much, but he really, really has his fingerprints on every single element of his stuff. And so what we were always trying to figure out was like, okay, but take those seven, eight filmmakers out of the equation for a minute. How can we make sure tone is matched up without the director? And it was always naming an actor, always. So, yeah, I think it's really, really helpful uh, to pick a lane, like we said. So Um, when pitching a TV show and you're asked, you know, it's this meets this, right? And I can get stopped up and I see other people get stopped up where it's, um, you know, it's Wonder Years meets Much Ado About Nothing. I don't. So then you get like, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? One is family. One is a group of people. One is. 60s but you know made in the 90s you know so it's like but so how do you separate like if I want to tell a buddy comedy like a a two-hander right do all my tone comps have to be two-handers like how do you how do you find those tone comps that are relevant that don't break people's brains that are what you're trying to do yes so what I first of all, you're God, you're not alone. It's the hardest, it's the hardest to find comps. I mean, I think most projects, everyone's in search of the best comps ever. So we we follow a couple rules. First of all, 
just knowing that everyone's going to use the rules of comps, which is like generally you need to pick something that was in the last five years that was well received, whether it's like award winning or financially or whatnot, or you can use something from 30 years ago if it's like still considered the best of the best and the benchmark of that era. You know, you can still say it's Godfather meets kindergarten or whatever, because that's just helps everybody understand. But the other thing I like to say is I usually never use two because that's where the confusion starts to kick in. Because suddenly like which part of the wonder years are we using versus which part of, of much ado? And that's where the head spins, right? So lately, I think what helps most writers in the TV pitch universe is they pick one, whatever it is, it's wonder years. And then how yours is different. It's wonder years, but set in the world of Renaissance Italy. And then you're like, oh, Okay, so we're totally doing the coming of age version, but it's going to be in, you know, 1500 Verona. Copy that. So I, suddenly one, I want to make this TV show the way you yeah. just said it, like the way I pitched it made no sense. But and I just pulled those references out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But know, we're making now I'm up. like, oh, I'm leaning in. That sounds yeah, interesting. I get that. Yeah. Right. I like, okay, wondering once, years, but I, in the I was world, in a lab once with Ted Hope and he was listening to this pitch and we were, none of us could figure out what this story was. It was all over the place. And all of a sudden he goes, wait, 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 are you doing Scarface in a high school? Right. And she goes, and we all were like, oh my God, she's doing Scarface. In high school. Like it just right. was like, boom, I understand yeah. that's the tone. Right. But, but it's in a high school. So we totally got it. No, totally. We, I had a kid the other day from UCLA. He um, grew up in a really abusive household. He wanted to tell a story of him, um, becoming like a, like a world-class debate champion. And try, he was trying to figure out one of those kind of cool from rags to riches from a horrible background to finding his own power. But he, he was having the hardest time because most of those underdog movies are really bright and shiny and cheery. And we, we talked about it a lot. And we talked about his, what it took to get to where he was and all this stuff. And suddenly all of a sudden we were like, oh, it's eight mile. It's eight mile. Oh my God, you're doing eight mile. And like, you should have seen everybody. You just like had this moment. So yeah, it's, it's vital to find those comps, but I think one is better with how you are changing the one really keeps the, keeps everybody's brain intact much easier. Or the other trick we, I like to use is again, adjectives are your friends. They're the greatest thing you can help. So the other version is I'm doing wander years with a sprinkle of Shakespeare. Or, you know, like with a little touch of Shakespeare and you'd be like, what? And then you'd be like, let me explain. So there's a version where you can unpack it that way. Yeah. You know, I used to be a reader and our, like my boss always wanted me to do the X meets X and I would always struggle. So sometimes what I would do is I would say like, it's so like for Finding Nemo, you could say like, it's the plot of Taken with the tone of Toy Story. Cause you know, like both Taken and Finding Nemo are about a father, like losing their kid in crisis. But I, I don't know if that's something you would ever do in a pitch of like specifying like the bones of the thing with a comp and then like the feel of the thing with another comp. Yeah, we do it a lot, especially because we traffic in a lot of horror scripts and obviously horror can truly run the gamut from super gory, bloody, horrible to a much more whimsical tone. So we have to be really careful if, it, if we're doing a Sam Raimi version of something. Or if we're doing a, you know, saw or like, a, you know, that version. So we oftentimes say it's the plot of this with the energy. We've done this too. We've said like, it's, it's got the energy of the Terminator with the tone of a Sam Raimi movie. And everyone's like, oh, okay. So you can, but that's where qualifying words keep the confusion to a minimum. 
So we, we, but we also play around with it a lot. I mean, I can't express to you how long it takes to find those, those perfect word choices in the, in the combo. And most people, it's so hard. You put it off to the end, right? It's a huge procrastination moment. Why would you ever, or people like dally in it for hours and hours because they're not writing, but either way we, and we've been doing this for like 30 years at my office, we go back and forth a lot and then finally hit on it. I mean, I, I one time captured a whole text thread of like, ultimately it was probably like 10 different words changed in what was a paragraph, but those 10 words through this crazy text thread took it from like an okay premise to really crystal clear. And that's the thing the sales agents use. So it's worth playing around. It's worth it is, really and it doing. also helps you in the writing because you've got to be disciplined in your mood and tone. You know, uh, it, it, you can't just bang off onto now suddenly in the midpoint, we're in a different movie. It kind of helps you like pick a pony, as they say, for this draft. And you're going to write many drafts. So for this draft, pick a pony. This is the tone pony we're on. This is the mood we're in. And uh, try to be disciplined about it. Um, so I do think it's helpful to, to do this because I know when I ask for tone and people give me something, they give me three movies that are so completely different in tone, like Dangerous Liaisons, you know, and uh, um, a high school movie and a broad comedy. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And then I realized, oh, they're talking about the plot. Like they're talking about social groups who are in conflict but which of those tones are you picking? Like, are we going to do the serious, dangerous liaisons epic? Or are we doing the intimate cat fighting of high school? With, but they are singing, so it's high school musical is very different, right, than, than dangerous liaisons. If people do get so hung up on plot, I think that that's, that's the number. If you had a sticky note on your computer to remind yourself of, like, even though you're working on a football movie, it doesn't mean that your tonal comps are... Friday Night Lights. It doesn't mean your tonal comp is every given Sunday. It means your your tonal comp might be Rebel Without a Cause. And that's that's what we're trying to help people understand is like get plot out of it and go purely with emotion. And then you had mentioned um, that you had some examples uh, to help people clarify tone um, uh, from a talk you and I did years ago. Uh, do you want to go through those? Yeah. Th now this goes back more to, it's sort of the opposite of what we're just talking about right now, which these are almost identical plots, but it just is helping you see how wildly different tone can be and how important it is to be incredibly precise. So the first one that I was thinking of this morning, knowing I was going to come talk with you all is everyone's obsessed with the TV show Secession, right? We are all intrigued by what happens with this family dynasty, how far are we going to go before someone else becomes as 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 evil as their dad in order to inherit Waystar? What lengths will they go to, right? We're all in. And I thought about it and I said, you know, what's crazy is when I was growing up, there was an exact same show, like the exact show with the crazy patriarch who would go to know every length to get what he wanted with a wife who was really controlling with a bunch of siblings who were all struggling. And it was Dallas, Aaron Spelling style. It was exactly the same, right? And all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's a perfect tonal swing. Couldn't be more different. Yet again, if you did the mathematical structure, I bet you that pilot is almost exactly the same. Interestingly Jockey too. Right? Um, Even the Yellowstone is doing the same thing. I mean, Yellowstone's oh, yeah. also a patriarch. So it's just as yeah. another tonal, that's totally, that's, that's a, a third Western. Tone. That's, that's a, a third tone. Yeah, it's a third right. example of the same plot. 
Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. It, no, 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 but that's exactly. So it just goes to show like, wow, if you take a little bit of what Aaron Spell, how Aaron Spelling likes to do his like sexy soapy take on it. That's his opinion. That's his attitude. That's how he got people's eyeballs on it. That's what his point of view is versus, you know, we bring in all the craziness of secession in that team and how, how completely darkly they want to unpack it. Right. So, so that was one. And then the talk we did a while ago, and it's been a long time, Meg, but I found it. So to me, it was fun to see which movies are still perennials and which ones have disappeared. But one of the good examples I felt like was, okay, so we have an amazing, powerful World War II movie. So we have Saving Private Ryan, but we also have something like Inglorious Bastards, really different because Tarantino, again, a, a very, very specific writer director who's declaring tone in the first minute in. And then going back to some of the classics, you have something like Dr. Strangelove. So those are all, of course, wildly different, yet making their point, changing the conversation, helping stimulate people thinking about this topic in the way that writer and that director and that team wanted you to feel and think about it. And the one that we I always use, because it's my favorite, is you think back to all the versions of Emma that have been made over the years, and then you think of Clueless. Very different tone, but kind of not in its own way. I mean, teenagers are still teenagers. Love is still love. Matchmaking is still matchmaking. Um, another one is think about like any version of King Arthur, whether you're doing the John Borman Excalibur from back in the day, which was like super steamy and very sexy and whatnot, Merlin and what, or all the way to Monty Python, Holy Grail, Spamalot. So to me, those are all great tone and all the different, all the different Sherlock Holmes we've had out there whether it was, you know, the Robert Downey Jr. version or like the Cumberbatch people. Um, we've got everything from Buffy the Vampire to Nosferatu. And then I was, I was giving my niece a really hard time a long time ago. She was obsessed with Twilight. And then we went to go see, there was the touring company of West Side Story, which they had switched. It was before they made the Spielberg movie. It was when Lin-Manuel Miranda actually changed it and made it much more authentically uh, Puerto Rican. So they were touring in, in it hit the Pantages here, which was a huge audience. I take her to see it. And she's like, I don't know if I really believe that like Tony and Maria just fall in love at like the dance at the gym. And I was like, I'm sorry, you're a fan of Twilight. He smells her across a parking lot and they are in love. Like, are you kidding me? Like, what? how are we like, even discussing this? But to me, it was a really good example of like, wow, the, the plot is the same, yet there's still bullshit moments, no matter where you are in teenage love. Um, <laughs> and so talking about tone difference. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then to, you know, bring up, bring up a little Baz Luhrmann while you're at it. And we've got that version of Romeo and Juliet. So, so I feel like... Uh, hopefully those are some good examples to help you. I I love lately these these sort of remakes also. So we've got something like the old school 21 Jump Street, which I grew up on versus like the hilarious movie versions, which are way different. And taking into what we talked about earlier, the whole mood of high school has changed in the new 21 Jump Street because now nerds are the leaders, not the jocks. Um, it's cool to have a backpack. All these things that didn't happen back in the day. So half of the reason I think 21 Jump Street as a movie worked was they took into account, again, social, political, economical vibe of the world that they were trying to create and then put characters into that and put two different characters and what their take on this, like, how does high school work now? And like, all of a sudden, Jonah Hill's like, dude, this is how it works. And Channing Tatum's like, what? And that was the beautiful conflict. But it's all born, honestly, out of that mood and that tone. And Channing's constant, like, huh? And Jonah's like, I got this. 
So that that embodied to me how to capture tone and mood and have it be really consistent all the way through and help people identify the, the genre mm-hmm. through character point of view. I also think the Willy Wonka, like the original Willy Wonka versus the Johnny Depp Willy Wonka, like look, talk example. about a tone shift, right? And it's going to be very interesting to see with this third one coming with Chalamet. Right. Like Chalamet, what, right. I'm so interested what tone they're going to take because he's a kind hearted guy, right? You know, so- and I, 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 I missed the, the heart, the heartful, weird, honestly, earnestness of the first movie in the second, like it, for me, it, it, it kind of got too serious and took it, you know, like it just wasn't as appealing to me. Um, mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see what tone the next one's going to take. So I have a question about um, when you're pitching a TV show, a half hour, hour, when you're pitching a movie, uh, can you make references across those? For example, you know, all these movies, all these TV shows about patriarchy, right? It goes all the way back to King Lear. Picking my favorite, right? So you could say, it's King Lear, but a Western. It's King Lear, but, you know, whatever succession is. I forget the, whatever. Um, I'm so articulate today. so say I'm pitching a half hour TV show, but the tone I want really mm-hmm. is this one hour show or a movie. Right. And I hear different things. Don't ever do that. It's okay to do that. You know, and so I'm just sort of curious, is that producer specific? Is that network specific? And then trying to predict what an exec might actually know about. Right. So like you say the last five years. <laughs> There yes. are so many TV shows that have been on the last five years. Some bubble up, right? And everybody knows. Some are kind of mid. It's just, how do you, you know, I start to second guess myself. Well, it's definitely Heather's, right? But then I'm like, well, that's of my time. Not necessarily someone might not even have heard of Heather's, which is a crime. Everybody should watch Heather's. Heather's is but, iconic. Um, that's a safe a benchmark. <laughs> Heather's has to be safe. I think it's been made into a hit Broadway show, you're saying. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. West End. Okay. Even. Yes. Okay. Yes. So everything yes. I write is Heather's. How about that? Um, <laughs> Leave us to meet Heather's. You know. Um, so how do you how do you crack that, or what is a way to approach cracking that so that you're not shooting yourself in the foot with your tone comps in the beginning of a pitch? Oh God! Or a no, movie. Totally. So, a movie yeah, too, yeah, right? You do yeah, tone, yeah. tone comps when you pitch a movie. Yeah. So I will say it is producer specific because some producers definitely have like rules they live by. But I my answer has definitely changed in the last five years for everything you just described, meaning, you know, we, we now have 500 shows on the air. So how can you guarantee this executive even knows that, that show? Even, by the way, even within their own company sometimes because it's so giant, right? How do you think anyone at Netflix keeps track of what their coworkers are shepherding? It's impossible. So you're right. You have to kind of feel it out. And I do have a little bit of a nervous thing, but my answer today is, because it is so hard to find a perfect comp, I do, we do break the rules in terms of you. I sometimes do name a movie, even if it's a TV show, especially because sometimes the show is only eight episodes, which is kind of like a really long movie. So I feel like you can get away with it in a different model. And and by the way, a lot of scripts I saw 10 years ago that were cool, but nothing happened are now getting turned into TV shows because they had a bigger world engine that you could do beyond 90 minutes and that's probably why they never got made as a film so I feel like everything's getting very mushy in this category so like we have a show we shopped a couple years ago like right before COVID and essentially it was a half hour workplace comedy and it was set in an all-female firefighter house and it was in the vein of bridesmaids 
And I felt totally okay saying bridesmaids because fuck that. Like there's nothing better when you're doing like a very, very broad female friendship 24 seven dynamic in a show that happens also to be a workplace comedy, but they live together. So it's kind of this hybrid, right? And I never got pushback from anybody that we used a movie like ever. So the hunt for a comp is so precise. I think it's okay now, but don't be lazy. Uh, a lot of times people use the first thing they've got. And and I'm like, you could look harder. I mean, we had, I had somebody recently pitching me like a true crime about a series of murders that happened in the eighties that have never been solved because it was in a community that no one cared and the police weren't paying attention to it. And these families have now carried this burden for that long and it's beyond reproach. And they were picking so many projects that I don't think had nearly the gravitas or the heartache. And the big question I asked them, and this is the other part of when you're picking comps is like, really, what do you want the takeaway to be? Like, what's the point you're making? Let's find a comp that made that point. And in this case, we found one. So it, it was worth it in the big scheme of things. But it so don't be lazy in your hunting. But I think it's okay to blur the line sometimes and use use a movie on a TV pitch. Use an hour long if you're doing half hour and vice versa. But you've got to feel out your producer. That just for me is that, sorry, Meg, but that made that point that you're trying to make. But mm -hmm. Meg, you talked about at the beginning, which is what are you trying, what's the feel of it? Like, mm -hmm. So when you think about that, like, what was the point of Wonder Years? What 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 was the point they were trying to make? And is that similar to my much but ado Wonder Years? But you're, you can make the same point in different tones. So I want to be careful here. Mm. Uh, okay. Right. Like, right? again, like, promising young woman made a point in a really bubblegummy tone. So I think it's important to ask what point you want to make, but that you could be careful because your comps might start to go back to plot and theme similarities versus tone similarities, right? So like in the example you were giving, Sheila, it was the gravitas. You used the word gravitas. You didn't even tell us thematically what it was because in, in what you just pitched, there could be five different shows, right? Because where are we focusing and thematically beyond the true crime, what are you focusing on? So I don't know if it's about what it's about as much as the feeling you want the audience to walk out of the theater with that the, the the seriousness and gravitas of this situation is tonally what you want people to have versus the lightness of of some what lightness of true crime that doesn't make sense it's an oxymoron but you know what I'm saying yeah. um so I think be super careful that it's not a, it's not necessarily always a thematic match you can still have different tone and then one other thing I wanted to add, Lorian, because this this came up a lot. So when we did, um, when I did the Fox Lab, part of the journey was all the writers at the end of a twelve week lab did a five minute pitch to all the TV executives within Fox, so they really got to know them. And what was interesting is, you know, it's five minutes is like kind of like not a, it's neither fish nor fowl in terms of pitch. It's not the quick down and dirty ninety second pitch, but it's not like the luxurious, beautiful fifteen minute pitch. So five minutes is this weird thing. So the writers were really using every word, making sure every word counted. And when they were pitching comedies, a lot of them like stayed up all night the night before doing huge comedy punch ups. So like every sentence was fucking hilarious like everything made you snicker and giggle and titter and you're on this hilarious ride for five minutes and one of the really really like the best comedy executive fox wisely said this pitch was funny but the show the moments in the show are not 
what is the situation happening <laughs> that makes this funny in plot, which is also tone. Like, are you, how are you, how are you, like the joke I always say is, is it law and order? Is it Brooklyn Nine-Nine? How are they solving the crime? The guys in Brooklyn Nine-Nine are solving it in very funny ways. They're actually doing funny, goofy stuff to get to the bottom of it. So the plot is funny in addition to like the actual way you're telling the story is funny. And that is this really tricky thing, but it's vital that, okay, if I'm going to do a gravitas thing, I have to put them in situations that are gravitas. If I'm doing a really goofy thing, I have to make goofy things happen. The crime in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, is the crime serious or is the crime silly? So it's it's even plot. And in those little pitches, those executives are so savvy. They hear, you know, they hear 600, 800 pitches a season. So right away, they are not bamboozled by awesome turns of phrase. They want to make sure that plot is online with the tone that you're establishing. This is upsetting to me because I'm such a good and hilarious pitcher. Yes, right. <laughs> I know. And like you own the room and then suddenly they're going to be like, yeah, but as, as she walks into the bedroom, is that a funny, actually no, a funny they're situation? they're not. They're going to be like, I was laughing when she fell from the <laughs> ceiling because the stripper pole broke into the ceiling. That's on the, yeah. But that's yeah. like a stripper pole breaking is quite but that's funny. plot. That's what she's yeah, saying. That's plot. I know. You can hear, can I, that's what I'm saying. I you can immediately I'm hear a genius. Tone. I'm you can immediately hear tone. The stripper yeah, pole yeah. broke. I yeah. hear tone. I mean, yeah. that's super hilarious. But hopefully that makes sense in terms of, of like word choice is even to the level of expertise, but you've got to make sure your story points are equally aligned with the tone that you're going for. I mean, we find that a lot. We we have a like a little military movie right now, and there's like a a guy following somebody through the bus station. And like, we've seen that scene a thousand times. Like, is he going to switch baseball hats and put on a hoodie or whatever? How's he going to get away from it? And in this case, that's kind of where the writer went. And we were like, oh my God, we've seen that a thousand times. That suddenly went from scary and intense to like stupid. Like you literally on a plot choice lost us because the tone became dumb. So it's, it's, that's why like Meg saying in, in terms of you have to have it consistently through the whole thing. And you have to, and it's it's the last thing writers worry about. It's so hard to figure out characters and sorting out how the story is going to be elevating and escalating, and we're going to have enough conflict that it's it's like last dibs. Oh yeah, go back and do a tone pass. And I think we got a fan. We got a question on the Facebook page about this from Anne about conflicting types of comedy in the same piece, like slapstick versus situational in the same project. And you know, I would say if there's slapstick comedy, that is a tone that you fit. And, yes. and you can't do just, you know, I guess a sprinkle of slapstick, but boy, that even that slapstick is so specific and so broad. You're doing a slapstick movie then. That's my opinion. What do you think? Uh, oh, we live this all the time because when we when we look at comedies, you can you can track comedies that I think don't connect with audiences for exactly that because you you like put two comic people in the movie starring plus a director who's obviously been directing comedy forever and everybody might have a different definition and suddenly it's like this one actor's in a different movie because they're they're embracing all the head bonking and this character's embracing like the funny word play and and like there's not a consistent thing going on there and then the audiences like can't connect so you're exactly right i mean we we have this conversation a lot also with horror comedies which are incredibly hard to do because what's funny? Is it funny in the situation or is it funny when the splatter hits them? Or is it funny? How do you, how do you make a good horror comedy? That's why there's so few that actually have, have connected and made, made money. So yeah, slapstick is its own universe. Head bonks are their own universe. And the minute you have a head bonk, 
it takes it to a completely different audience for sure. We had another question kind of related to this and it comes from Dylan and, you know, he's talking about the fact that as screenwriters were encouraged to be as concise and efficient and sort of neutral on the page as we can. But then we also hear conversations about show your voice on the page, even in your action lines and your dialogue. And to me, so much of tone has to do with your voice as a writer. Um, so like in your opinion, Sheila, like how do we toe that line between like efficiency in our action lines and like kind of staying sterile in a way as we need to as the writer, but still allowing, you know, tone to show up even in action on the page. I love that question, by the way. <laughs> it's terrific. Dylan, thank you. It's a constant struggle. We, we're we working with some writers right now who, who their prose is so good that it's another kind of bamboozling thing. And suddenly when you take yourself 20,000 feet up and say like, but what's happening in this scene? It's not as captivating as possible. So you're right. Like some people can sp spend so much time crafting a voice filled script that they lose sight of what is really needing to move us, which is how is this character responding to something and what are we throwing at them next and what are we putting them through? Right. So we usually, I usually, you know, sparse is great, but sometimes sparse is so empty that we don't know who the writer is. So I agree. Like we all know. We all know that's why people say you only read the first seven pages at first, because you know right away if you're in good hands and by seven pages, you don't have structure established yet. You might have character firmly planted, but you more than anything, do you have voice and do you have tone? So I think it's worth it to figure out how you can be economical yet sprinkle in your take on things, right? Your well-defined, effective point of view, even if it's just a, a, a line or two that catches somebody's attention. Like I said earlier, like you can plant a flag quickly the top of a movie and it'll carry you for quite a while if you then get a little bit more thin in terms of your description. But I, I don't know if I like, I don't know if that's explaining it well enough or giving you a firm enough answer. It's just, it's, 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 that's definitely like, I know it when I see it, but we do, I know especially in TV, people are all getting their work because of their voice. There's no question. So voice. And I think, I think the best way to learn this is read scripts. And I don't mean the kind of scripts that have been somebody watched the movie and typed it. I mean, the actual writer's scripts and you're going to start to hear voice and it just, you start to learn it like music and then what the difference in what yours is. I mean, that's in terms of how they're describing things and how they're doing this. That would be my best advice. I think anybody trying to learn to be a writer, you should be reading five scripts a week. That's my it's opinion, because we all did. All the executives are, P.S. <laughs> she just said For these real. executives are hearing hundreds of pitches a year. This is how they know how to do what they do. No, I know. Everyone's like, oh, that stupid executive. And I'm like, yeah, but do you realize that executive was when they were an assistant and a junior executive, they were reading on average like a thousand scripts a year, somewhere somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred scripts a year. So yes, exactly, Meg. It's when I did I did a list a long time ago, of like number one rookie errors. And the number one is not reading enough scripts of like professionally produced scripts that are getting heat, especially. Um, it's really rare when you start reading those that there isn't a little bit of energy behind it. There's a little bit of oomph. And you like in the perfect world, you don't have a cover page on stuff and you can still tell the writing, the voice is that good, right? That's what you want. And and by the way, we could have a whole another conversation and you've had some amazing TV people on who talk about this all the time, is if you're trying to come up in TV, you need to have a voice to get hired and then you need to modify your voice to match your showrunner so that you can have a show that can go week to week. And the showrunner loves the writer who hands in a draft that doesn't need an aggressive rewrite. 
that's what keeps you in the game. So not only are you good at voice, you have to be excellent at tone modification to match somebody. That's a skill set. That's like an Olympic skill set, which is why cracking the TV code has become the thing. You know, one of my most impressive moments early on is I had a a writer who did have to come in for a quick rewrite and I couldn't tell the difference between the original writer and their work in terms of voice, the plot they fixed, but that was, it was a seamless transition and that's, that's huge. Yeah. So understanding your voice basis. So understanding your voice informs tone, helps with tone, supports tone. Yeah. Big yeah. picture. Yeah. Big picture and theme. I mean, it's amazing what one little word choice can do to help like, wow, this writer has this thought. We we had a project a really long time ago about a husband and a wife and the guy who wrote it, um, it was kind of like the, the unraveling of a marriage and the wife was really unhinged by like page 12. And so I thought, oh, we're going to just have a quick notes meeting. We're going to dial that back. She's going to like slowly start to become unhinged, you know, after the first act gets everything set up and their world is established. And we're going to like unpeel this onion in a much more graceful way. And 20 minutes into that meeting, I realized that this wife was based on a woman who married his best friend and he hates her so much. And that whole unhinged choice was like spewing out on the page from the beginning. And he, there was no way he could really dial it back because his, his opinion and his take on her was from page one that, and that's his, that's his voice on this topic. Yeah. 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 It's a high bar, obviously, but um, like just as an example of an opening to a script that um, really like, I think, merges tone, voice and feel. Uh, The Social Network script starts by describing Mark Zuckerberg as saying, Mark Zuckerberg is a sweet looking 19 year old whose lack of any physically intimidating attributes masks a very complicated and dangerous anger. And like in one line, we kind of sense like the darkness and sort of the suspense. And, you know, the Social Network, there's a there's something off balance about that movie and kind of complicated and dangerous. So to use those words right away, I think teaches the audience and whoever's reading it, what, what, where we are, what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Your main character better be dead center in that tone, dead center. They are creating the tone by their choices and the world they're in. And absolutely. Sheila, this has been so amazing. I mean, I, I, I want to somehow star this episode if you want to be a writer, you have to listen because uh, it is such a confusing, hard thing for writers to get. Um, and you've just made it so clear. Well, yes, I hope thank I, did. You. I, I one other silly little thing that I wanted to yeah. mention. I think it helps. Um, back when I used to work at Steppenwolf Theater, when I was a young one, um, I found it fascinating that when the stage manager did the report every night after the performance, the one of the top things they put in addition to how many people were in the audience was what the weather was outside. Because it affected how the audience's mood was listening to the play that night. And it's always stuck with me because that's sort of what we're talking about in a different way is like, what's the weather report? What's the mood here? And I love that they were smart enough to realize it would impact the entire takeaway by that audience because there was something in them as they sat down to watch. And we're asking you to pick a tone and pick a pony so that when the audience is walking out of the theater, they are walking, all walking out in the same mood because of where you took them with that, with that tone. Um, Sheila, as always, yeah, thank you. You're a genius. My pleasure. I hope it helped. <laughs> Whatever I, I did. Can do. It okay. always helps me to hear you speak again. Um, 
And to our listeners, if you haven't joined, we highly recommend the TSL Facebook group. It's a beautiful place to meet other writers and find additional support outside the show. And we've got the Patreon going. Um, and we're really helping you more kind of one-on-one there. So take a look. And uh, Sheila came to the Patreon and did a great uh, 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 session over there for us too. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.